For the last six weeks, we've been going through this book uh, of the prophet Micah. He lived about 700, well, he, he wrote this book about 730 to 700 years before Christ. And he's been looking forward to uh, the day when God's people, particularly the city of Jerusalem, are going to be crushed by their enemies, but rise again uh, from the grave, as it were. And this is his final oracle, his final speech, uh, where he sets out the hope for God's people. So we're going to read all of chapter 7, Micah 7, and I'll read from verse 1. Woe is me, for I've become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment, has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbour. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt, and daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I'll bear the indignation of the Lord because I've sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she'll be trampled down like the mire of the streets. A day for the building up of your walls. In that day, the boundaries shall be far extended. In that day, they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff. The flock of your inheritance who dwell alone in a forest, in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvellous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths, their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you've sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Let's pray before we turn uh, to look at this passage. Our great God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, these are words that you have given to us. They are words of life and truth. And so we pray in your mercy 
uh, that you would give us soft hearts, uh, minds that understand, hands willing to obey. Uh, Show us, we pray, wonderful things uh, out of your word as we come to you empty-handed and in need of your grace. Bless us, we pray. Therefore, in Jesus' name, amen. If you looked at the news uh, this morning, you will have seen perhaps um, yet another tragic celebrity suicide. Uh, That's not a happy note to begin a sermon on, but it's all too common, isn't it? Uh, Someone raised up in the public eye and then tragically, months, years later, uh, cast down. I'm not going to comment on the particular circumstances. I know nothing about it. But it is the case, isn't it, that our world is full of darkness. Maybe one or two of you, when you you read the story about this TV presenter, Caroline Flack, maybe one or two of you in particular, it just felt quite real. Uh, You know what it is to despair. You know what it is to live in darkness. You know what it is for, for the light of hope to be all but extinguished. Uh, However well life is going at the moment, uh, we know that that it is not one great journey from joy to joy. Uh, We know that at some point, tragedy will strike. Uh, The temptation to despair will will rise up. The waters, as it were, will will, will rise and rise and rise. And perhaps we fear we'll be submerged. Uh, Micah. Uh, seven begins with this, this great cry, woe is me. This kind of word would be cried at the funeral. Uh, the first line, the kind of call as the funeral begins, woe is me. But, but Micah, uh, in, this, in this poem, in this oracle, isn't despairing. He's acknowledging the darkness, but he's not utterly overwhelmed. Okay, he's not in denial. Pollyanna-ish. He's not one of these people who, who just pretends that everything is wonderful, everything is awesome all the time. You know, the Lego movie children, if you saw the Lego, everything is awesome. Is that the line that comes back and back again? As, this little guy's just constantly happy. Mike is not that. Okay, he knows life is tough. We'll see that in a minute. He knows life is hard, but neither is he utterly despairing. At verse 7, if you like, is the hinge of the whole passage. As for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. He is crying out woe, he is acknowledging the darkness, but he's not despairing. Uh, He has a hope that will sustain him. Now the darkness is is pretty bad for him. In those first six verses, he he paints a picture and it's grim. Uh, He feels utterly alone. I think that's the idea behind the the, the grape picture in the first verse there. That the grapes have been gleaned, there's no clusters to eat. Micah goes out to look at the, at the, the vineyard and he can find nothing to eat. It's all gone. And he explains it in verse 2, that God may have perished from the earth. There is no one like me. If you're a Christian, perhaps you can, you can associate him with him there. You look around the office and you think, I am the only one here. In your sports team, I am massively the odd one out. Children at school, perhaps you know you're the only Christian in your class. No one else. No one else that seems to care about Jesus. No one else seems to be wanting to live the way that Jesus tells us to live. 
in England increasingly. That's pretty common. A few years ago, I was in, in America, in Louisville, in Kentucky. And uh, I got on a bus. I was going to a conference, a Christian conference. I got on a bus and I you know, asked for the fare or whatever it was. He heard my English accent. And the bus driver said, oh, you must be here for the, for the, for the conference. How, how do you know about the conference? He said, oh, everyone knows about the conference. As the bus drove into town, there's huge banners up. It's a Christian conference. Huge banners up all across the town. Uh, welcome to Together for the Gospel, I think it was called. It was just so strange. When was the last time you got on a bus or in a taxi and it turned out the guy was a Christian? Really pleased to hear you're a Christian too. It just, to me, honestly, it's never happened in the UK. Uh, life can be lonely, and that is what Micah is feeling at his stage Okay, in the life of Israel, probably about 700 years before Christ at the moment, at his stage, he feels like he's almost the only one left. And everybody else is exploiting one another. Excuse me, I'm going to croak my way through this morning. Uh, look down with me to verse 3. Uh, for everybody else, their hands are on what is evil to do it well. Everybody else is brilliant at exploiting people. And particularly those in power. Uh, the prince and the judge ask for a bribe. The great man utters the evil desires of his soul. They weave it together. Okay, the great man, the king, so maybe the nobles, the king, the judge, they're all in it together in order to exploit uh, the poor. Uh, Later on in the service, we'll take a collection. We take a collection each week, not for the work of the church, but to give away uh, to those in need, either in Leeds or further afield. And one of the charities we support is the, the Barnabas uh, Fund, who particularly help persecuted Christians worldwide. And if you read their prayer diary, almost every month, you'll hear stories uh, of Christians in various parts of the world who are being beaten by their village elders while the police turn a blind eye. That's what's going on in Israel. And to hear the force of that, that's what's going on within the people of God. These are the people who have the Old Testament, who have God's word. These are the people who've got the prophets, got the temple, got the sacrifices, and they are treating one another like this. And again, sadly, not a lot has changed, has it? Even in our own world, those within the seeming church of God, within the people of God, often exploit the weak. We've thought about this in previous weeks. I don't want to get too much more into it uh, this morning. But, but even just the other day, I, I saw an advert uh, online, or I saw a little news article online. I, I was, it was a, sorry to go at the Americans again, but it was, it, it was of an American minister, okay, a famous American minister. Uh, and he was advertising what he called Silver Solution. Uh, and for $80, you send him $80, he'll send you this bottle of Silver Solution. And what will Silver Solution do? It'll cure coronavirus. and he'll send you this stuff, and it will cure coronavirus. Now, you go on the NHS website, there is no cure for coronavirus. But don't worry, this American TV evangelist has got it. At the same time, he's got some particularly odd views, or odd in my view, uh, views about when Jesus comes back, and, you know, Jesus will come back, and there'll be this kind of big battle, and we'll have to go underground. So he's willing to sell you a big pot of coffee, okay, to to trade. He explains why this great big pot of coffee, you'll be able to trade it for a car, or something like that, when... What's he doing? He's exploiting people. People who fall into his trap. Maybe very good-hearted people who want to honour God and end up giving their money in order that he might become wealthy. 
Uh, even the best, first of all. Even the best people are like thistle people. Do you want to imagine if, if, if at Christmas you were given a, a teddy, a cuddly toy, and it was made out of thorns? Okay. And you had to snuggle up to that at bedtime. Okay. It'd be awful, wouldn't it? Pr- prickly poking you. Even the best people are like thorn people. They damage us when they go near us, says Micah. And perhaps most damagingly of all, in verse 5 and 6, it's the, it's the closest people. It's the family who you can't even trust. Brother fights brother, sister, sister, mother, daughter, father, son. I can't even trust my own family, says Micah. Some of you will know that pain. Again, I think it's probably felt by brothers and sisters around the world more so. One Sunday, I spoke to a visiting student here with us. He's not here anymore, but just visiting for a week uh, over from, from uh, Nigeria. He'd become a Christian from an Islamic background. And so I, I just asked him about how was that? And he said, well, I'm the only one in my family. Uh, so I asked him how his family took it. And the answer was not well. He told me that one day whilst he was at church, a normal church service like this, his father arrived with a machete to kill him. And he had to escape out the window. Uh, now these are verses, uh, verse five and six, that Jesus quotes uh, or, or sort of alludes to as he talks about our own age, okay, the, the present age. These are not things that are just historical uh, sort of antiquities, things true of Micah's day, but not our own. Families are split when some are faithful to Christ and others aren't. Some of you will know that pain. You'll be the only Christian in your family. Perhaps they think you're strange, you're odd, you're mad, but it's lonely. Incidentally, and this is a little bit of a sidestep, but given that many of you are young and still not forming families, still not married, it, it is incredibly lonely to be in a family where those closest to you don't share your faith. So don't deliberately put yourself into that position. Okay, don't marry someone who doesn't share your faith. That's what's sort of a big thing that Micah's going at here. I say that by way of a side. But you can feel in verses 5 and 6 the pain of not being able to, to trust those most close to you. Uh, the call in Scripture is to marry people who share our faith, not because we're better than other people, but because ultimately we, we serve a Lord and need to be faithful to him and need those closest to us uh, to be supporting us in that walk. So Micah is seeing the darkness. If you're a Christian, it's important to know that the God has not promised you this comfortable coach journey home. Okay, it's not a first-class travel back to heaven. If you're new to the church, uh, new to Christian things, first of all, you're hugely welcome. It's great that you're here with us this morning. I know the university's been running a series of events recently, uh, and, and if you've come along to that and that's brought you along this morning, it's so good to have you with us here. Uh, we hope you feel at home. But I do want to say to you that, that it would be wrong for me to promise or anyone to promise that if, if you just put your trust in Christ, then everything will go smoothly from now onwards. Every time you get ill, you can just pray and God will take it away. Every job you want, you can just pray and God will give it to you. If you're lonely and, and want a, a boyfriend or girlfriend, you can just ask and God will give it. That is not the case. In fact, in many ways, your life might get harder in some ways if you start following Christ. See here the realism. The Bible isn't this sort of pie-in-the-sky book, fairy tales, candy uh, shops, sweets. It is gritty and real. But he doesn't despair. That key verse, verse 7 again, he doesn't despair. But as for me, 
Well, Micah does two things. He waits and he watches. I will look to the Lord. That's what I'm going to watch. That's where I'm going to fix my eyes. I'm going to fix my eyes on God. We'll come back to that. And second half of verse 7, I will wait for the God of my salvation. Much of the Christian life is waiting. One of the great calls, one of the great commands on you if you're a follower of Jesus is just wait. If you were to write a list of things that Christians are meant to do, you'd probably come up with all sorts of things, all sorts of things. We're meant to pray, we're meant to talk about our faith, we're meant to give, we're meant to care for the poor. We're meant to, yeah, but one of the main things we're meant to do is wait. That's the main command of this passage really. Wait for the God of my salvation. What in particular is he waiting for? Well, Micah uh, turns to, to picture language. Uh, and in verses 8 through 17, he, he speaks. And in many ways, he speaks on behalf of the city. So when in verse 8, he says, rejoice not over me, O my enemy, he's speaking as if he, he is Jerusalem, okay, the, the city of God. Okay, it's, not, it's not a personal attack on him. Rejoice not over me, Micah. He, he's speaking on behalf of the city. Uh, and the city of God... Jerusalem is the capital city of Israel, uh, but symbolically it's the people of God, that this city knows that it's going to fall, verse 8, but then rise again. It's going to be destroyed, but remade. It's going to die and rise, in other words. The great hope for Micah is the death and resurrection of the city of God. That is his great hope. Now, if that sounds strange, just stay with me. Let's look a little bit to see what what this hope involves. What is he looking forward to? When the resurrection comes of this city, when the city rises again, what will it be like? Well, all sorts of things. Uh, Verse uh, 11, what will happen? A day for the building of your walls. The walls will come back up. The city will be secure again. No more fear from enemies. No more worry that we're going to be attacked. No security, peace. Uh, the city will become an international city. In that, that day, they'll come to you, those from Assyria, Egypt, Egypt to the river. From the ends of the earth, they'll come in. Uh, I grew up in rural Dorset, right on the south coast, and it was the most monocultural place you could possibly imagine. Okay, rural Dorset in the, in the early 80s. Cliff Richard filmed a video down there for one of his songs, um, and, it, and they, used all the local, they wanted to use all the local school children, but they couldn't because it was just so boringly monocultural, these little kind of white middle-class kids coming out. So they had to ship in people from all over the place. The, the, the city of God, when it rises again, is not going to be one nation, one language, one people group. It's not even, to Micah's contemporaries' surprise perhaps, it's not even going to be pure Israelite. It's going to be every nation. One of the joys, I think, about living in Leeds, and particularly being in the centre here near the university, is that you meet people from so many different countries Again, if you're here this morning and church is very new to you, uh, you are so welcome. And it's really important you know that the Christianity, that Jesus, is not just for, I don't know, Westerners. I mean, it didn't begin in the West anyway, did it? It's not a Western religion. It began in Israel, okay, in the Middle East. But it's not just a religion for those from the Middle East. It is for all nations. In the book of Revelation, at the end of the Bible, John gets a picture of what things will look like at the end of time. And he see, says, I see people from all nations, all tribes, all tongues. There is no person who is excluded because of who they are or where they were born or what religion they used to practice or what their parents believe or what they look like. 
So this safe city is going to be international. And it's going to be shepherded, verse 14, by God. A few times already in our service, we've mentioned the idea that that God is a shepherd to his people. He primarily does that through his son, Jesus. Uh, This shepherd will come and care for them. The enemies will be conquered. That was earlier in verse 10. The enemies will be trampled underfoot. All that that threatens God's people will be crushed. And in verse 14, we, we get this picture of it's kind of rural bliss. This is village life in Dorset. Okay? The absolute peak, the most beautiful place on earth you could find. Okay, everyone nowadays talks about cities and the importance of cities. And uh, city, I mean, in Revelation, we end up with a city, but it's a garden city. And in verses 14 and 15, we get this beautiful kind of countryside picture. One day, uh, God's people will be like sheep grazing in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old, in the midst of a garden land. It's bliss. I don't know if you've got a place that you, you go to or a place you can remember out in the countryside that is just utterly peaceful, where it felt like all the cares of the world just melted away. Yeah, there's a few places in my head. I used to live in Derbyshire until recently. and There are a few places out in the Peak District that I just feel like heaven on earth. And Mike was saying, yeah, one day it'll be like that. One day. Wait and Wait. But what's all this got to do with this? Uh, why is the death and resurrection of this city of interest to us? Well, it's of interest because it's setting a pattern. Excuse me again. It's setting a pattern. Uh, now, I want to talk to you about Star Wars. If you've not seen Star Wars, I'm about to ruin it. Um, so put your fingers in your ears, okay, which I will very rarely say uh, whilst preaching. Uh, if you saw the first Star Wars movies that came out in, in the 70s and the 80s, uh, it was about... Um, uh, this, this sort of uh, guy, Luke Skywalker, who is essentially this, this kind of space wizard with a magic sword. Uh, and, and he comes up, the climax at the end of the three films, he comes up and he fights against the Emperor. And if you remember, the Emperor has a, a henchman, Darth Vader, big guy, black mask, black cape, red sword. And right at the end, as the Emperor and, and Luke Skywalker, they go head to head. And it looks like Luke's going to win. But suddenly at the last moment, the bad guy all dressed in black switches sides, defeats the emperor, and saves Skywalker, but in doing so, dies. So years later, they bring out the new trilogy, okay, the ones that have just finished. Again, I'm going to ruin the new trilogy now. Um, how does it end? Well, you've got the emperor, the same emperor, in fact, going against a new young space wizard who's popped out of the desert out of nowhere. And just as it looks like the emperor's going to win, who pops up? Well, the Emperor's former henchman who spent all the movies dressed in black with a big scary mask and a red magic sword. And he gives his life that again, the new little Jedi might win. It is the same story again. It's meant to make us think as we watch the new one, huh, I remember that. Now, why do I say that? What's going on in Micah, when we read the rest of the Bible, should sound familiar. It should make us think, huh, just a minute, I recognise that. It's a story of death and resurrection. Verse 8, when I fall, I shall rise. The city falls, but rises. Where do we see that? Well, we see the beginning of this new city in the death and resurrection of Jesus, God's shepherd, God's son. He describes himself in one place as the temple of God. He is where God dwells on earth. He says, 
tear this building down, meaning himself, his body, and I'll rise it up again, raise it up again in three days, on the third day. Uh, Micah is, is painting, albeit in shadowy forms, a picture of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Jesus, bearing the indignation of our sins, not his own, verse 9, uh, went down into the darkness. Do you remember as he died? Children, what happened to the sun as Jesus died? Do you remember what happened? The sun, what happened, Abs? Exactly, it blacked out. The sun went dark. Jesus went into the darkness, but rose again on Easter morning as the light conquered the darkness. Because he's risen from the dead, all the beautiful things described in this part of Micah have begun to happen. The city of God, and ultimately the city of God is not a place, it's a people, has begun to be a place of security. What does that mean? It means that not, as I said earlier, that you're protected from all harm if you become a Christian in a in in a sense, here on earth, not that you'll never get ill, never die, never suffer, but rather that if you do die, get ill, suffer, ultimately that's only going to lead you to heaven. Nothing can separate you from dwelling in that perfect land of heaven. The church has begun to be international. The gospel has gone out to the ends of the earth. There are now Christians in all corners, from mountain to mountain, river to river. Christ rules over his people. The church is not in the power of human leaders. I'm not in charge of Christ Church Central. Christ is. He is the shepherd. And because he's risen from the dead, we know that he'll fulfill his promise to come back and finally implement all these things. So we see them in all their fullness. He has promised that one day the world will be restored. There will be no more death or mourning or pain or sickness. There will be no more enemies. Uh, one day, it will be like dwelling in that countryside paradise, and you'll have nothing to fear. In other words, like Micah, we are called to wait. But we wait with certain hope, because we've seen that Jesus has risen again. It's not a kind of fingers crossed, maybe we'll make it hope. It's a certain hope, because it's a hope that's already begun in the resurrection of Jesus. And having a certain hope makes all the difference in the world. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, a Christian or not, you will suffer. We're all going to suffer. We know that. We will all enter the darkness. But let me ask you, have you got a hope, a certain hope, that there is light at the end of the tunnel, that you will come out the other end? That makes all the difference to how you live now. Imagine two soldiers in in World War II. Uh, They're at home in Britain, and uh, their, their homes are bombed. Uh, they escape. And in one case, he escapes. The soldier escapes with his wife and his children. No one on the street is harmed. In the case of the other man, everyone is killed. His wife, his family, his friends. Both go and fight on the front lines. Both get taken captive. Which one is going to survive that captivity better? The one who has a hope to look forward to. The one who has the photo of his wife in his pocket, who knows that one day he'll back with her, one day he'll see his children again, one day he'll be reunited with his friends, or or the one who's lost everything. The lack of hope crushes us. But in Christ, we have a sure and certain hope. That is the hope, if you come to him, that he gives you. It also means that 99% of the blessings that God promises you are future. 99% 99% of the blessings that God offers you 
our future. If you are particularly downcast at the moment, if you feel the weight of your world, if, if you really can associate with, with, with Caroline Flack and, and the desperation that she must have felt, then can I encourage you to, to lift your eyes and see how much greater the future is going to be. If you know that uh, the author C.S. Lewis of the Narnia stories, uh, seven books, great stories, but, but their ending is so beautiful. Uh, they, they end with the children kind of entering the new heavens and the new earth. Children, if you've you read the Narnia books, they're fantastic. If you haven't, get reading or get mum and dad to read you to them. Uh, and at the end of the story, they've entered this fantastic new world. And C.S. Lewis writes this, the things that began to happen after that were so great and so beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world, all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That is the story of your life. Okay, what you're living now is the cover page. It's the title page. And the page of contents. It is nothing. Your life will last forever. That is true for all of us, actually. And if you come to Christ, it'll last forever with each one getting better, each day getting better than the one before. Not necessarily immediately here on earth, but when he returns or when we die. Eternity, life after the resurrection is infinitely long compared to the speck that is our lives here on earth. Hold on, the blessings will come. And let me just ask you if, you, if you're not yet convinced of the Christian faith, do you have hope? When the darkness comes, where are you going to look to? What, what is going to help? What is going to get you through? Do you have an answer ultimately to, to death? Jesus doesn't ask you to come and, and buy this future. He doesn't ask you to earn it. He doesn't give it to those who are good. He certainly doesn't give it to those who are British or English or middle class or university educated. Or He gives it free to all who will come, who will admit they've been rebellious. They've been living for themselves, but will come to him for forgiveness. And he freely gives. That command, wait, 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 hold on. But also as we close, watch. Micah in verse 7. I will wait for the God of my salvation, but I will look to the Lord. I'm looking somewhere as I wait. Uh, yes, he's looking to the future, but he's looking to the Lord. And what is that God like? Well, that God is like the God of verses 18 to 20. It's a beautiful finish to a, a, a book, to the book. You might remember, if you were here at the beginning of this series, we said Micah's name means who is like God, who is like Yahweh. Micah, that end bit is meant to be called like Yahweh. If you're called Michael, your name means who is like El, who is like God. Someone told me that Michael apparently is the, the longest recorded name in all of human uh, history, the oldest recorded name at least. So Michael began his book by saying who is like God and he ends it by saying who is a God like you? What is God like? God is a God of extraordinary love. Verse 8, he pardons our iniquity, our sin, our rebellion. He passes over our transgression. He doesn't stay angry with our sin forever because he delights in steadfast love. 
Do you understand, Micah says to those listening, do you understand how extraordinary God's love is for you? What other God loves you like this? Perhaps he was speaking to people who, who did worship other gods. For us here today, it may well be that we're somebody who says, well, I don't worship any God, but we're living to something. Who can give you love like this God? Utterly unconditional, not dependent on you remaining beautiful or intelligent or interesting or funny. Utterly unconditional. Why does God love? Verse 18, because he delights to. God loves because he loves to love. He doesn't love because he's going to get something back. He doesn't love because it helps him out. He doesn't love because he's lonely. He loves because he loves to love. Now, if you've been here through the last few weeks, you, look, you might at this point be saying, well, just a minute, Micah, throughout the book, has been talking about judgment all the time, about God's power and his justice. Even in the chapter we've, we've looked at today, we, we've seen God trampling on enemies. Earlier, we saw God, through Micah, warning people who say, oh, God will never judge. Yeah, there's no judgment day coming. Has he just changed his mind at the end? Suddenly changed from a God of justice and power to God of love? No. Micah is telling us in these last few verses that actually God's justice and his power are loving justice and power. Or to put it the other way around, he has a powerful love. Look at the power of his love in verse 19. God is so powerful in his love that he can tread our sin underfoot. He can crush it. You ever stamped on an egg, children? I mean, don't do it when you get home, but you stamp on an egg, you'd completely crush it, wouldn't you? Disappear. Imagine all the things you've done wrong being written on an eggshell. God just stamps on them. When you put your trust in Jesus, just stamps on them, they're gone. Michael began his book by saying that God was going to come and stamp, tread on the high places of the earth. High places are the place where we commit idolatry. He's going to stamp on idolatry. Even in this chapter, uh, verse 10, God is going to stamp on, tread on, the enemies. And these last couple of verses tell us our main enemies are sin. Our main problem is not the stuff out there. It's not even disease and illness and cancer. Our main problem is our own sin, and God will tread on it, stamp on it. Or he's so powerful to change the picture, verse 18, 19, sorry, he can pick it up like a rock and just throw it into the depths of the sea. Imagine all your sins written on a rock, chiseled into that rock, and thrown to the bottom of the deepest trench in the Pacific Ocean. Gone. His power is loving power. He used it to defeat our greatest enemy, our own sin. It's just love as well. It's a strange verse, verse 9, we skipped over it. Micah, speaking as the city, says, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I've sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. See what he's saying? He's saying, I can't wait for judgment to happen. Well, that's that's strange. Judgment's the bad thing, isn't it? Well, no, says Micah. Judgment is good if you're on God's side. God's righteousness. That's the other word, vindication, in verse 9. Same word, translated different ways. Righteousness, vindication. His righteousness is good for us, us, says Micah, if you're on his side. Why? Well, it's all found in that shepherd. As Jesus goes to the cross, he does so not for his own sin, but for ours. I wonder if you ever seen one of those uh, pictures, almost like mosaic, where you see a photo of someone, and when you look more closely, that the photo is made up of lots of other little pictures 
of that person, just lots and lots and lots of pictures, making up one great big picture. Jesus is a kind of mosaic man. As he goes to the cross, he does so united to all his people, all his sheep. And therefore, if you put your trust in him, your sin has been punished. It's not that God decides to let some people off their sin and not others, as if he just sort of forgets some sin and deals with us. No, all sin is punished. But so great is his love that he has found a way of justly forgiving us by punishing our sin in his own son. Even God's justice now means that if you come to him, you cannot be condemned, that nothing, not even your sin, can bar you from that heavenly paradise because it has already been punished. And that is why Micah watches, keeps his eye on God. He needs to be reminded that God is utterly loving, utterly for him. He needs to be reminded not to shrink away from God as if God is simply this terrifying being in the sky or this burningly pure being who therefore is going to obliterate him. No, God is so full of love that he has found a way to rescue us through his power, through his righteousness, through his justice. And that's why you can wait confidently. However down you fear, however dark the world around grows, keep your eye on Christ. There is no God like him. And he will be light to you in the darkness and ultimately he will bring you into that heavenly paradise. Those pleasant fields, refreshing pastures. Wait and watch. Wait and watch. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you that though we are helpless like sheep gone astray, and though we're corrupt and our sins ought to be that we are cast ourselves into the depths of the sea, so great is your love uh, that you've sent your Son uh, to carry them, to bear them, to go to the cross in our place, to go into the darkness in order that we might live forever in the light. And so we pray that you would strengthen our hope. Pour the spirit of hope into our hearts, we pray. Uh, we ask particularly this morning for those who are downcast, particularly downcast, uh, that in your goodness you would draw near and enable them to wait and wait confidently. And knowing there is no God like you and you will redeem, you will save, you will rise us up from the darkness and bring us into the safety and joy of your eternal kingdom. Bless us, we pray, in the name of Christ. Amen.